Before we dive into Matthew 10, I want to read a few lines from a movie script of a comedy that I think helps illustrate one of the points I'd like to communicate this morning. The scene is a family dinner. They're sitting around a dinner table. And the father, patriarch of the home, is asked to lead in prayer. And he says, Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we like to thank you for my wife's father, Chip, and we hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him. Dear tiny infant Jesus. At this moment, he's interrupted by his wife, and the wife says, hey, hon, you know, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to pray to him referring to him as a baby. That's a little off-putting, isn't it? He responds by saying, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying the prayer, and so when I say the prayer, you can pray to whatever Jesus you want. Maybe you like the grown-up Jesus, the teenage Jesus, the bearded Jesus, but I'm going to pray to dear tiny Jesus in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fists. He was interrupted again at this point, and his father-in-law says, Listen, he was a man. He had a beard. He responds, no, I like the baby version best. And concludes his prayer saying, dear eight pounds, six ounce, newborn baby Jesus, who doesn't even know a word yet, just a little infant, cuddly, but still omnipotent. We thank you for all your power and grace, dear baby God. Amen. That may seem funny to some of you. Maybe like this man's wife in the movie sketch, you're offended. This is a little off-putting, and why are you even bringing it up in church? This way of praying and thinking might seem extreme or a bit absurd. But I want you to consider that around Christmas time, it might be a common temptation for many of us to make the same mistake, but maybe not in this extreme form. To miss the real point of Christmas and sentimentalize the baby. I don't mean the whole keep Christ in Christmas campaign or slogan. I'm not talking about Santa Claus or presents and materialism associated with this holiday. I mean, we can miss the point as Christian people who believe in and talk about Jesus at Christmas time and miss really the point of his coming and his birth. It can become just sweet and sentimental. For example, listen to these well-known words of beloved Christmas carols that some of you might love. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. Or away in a manger, no crib for his bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky look down where he lay, and the little Lord Jesus is asleep on the hay. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but the little Lord Jesus, oh, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky and stay by my side till morning is nigh. I don't know about you, but every time I hear those words, no crying he makes, I start thinking, I've had four children. 
I know that he was the son of God, but give me a break. I'm pretty sure he cried as a baby. Compare these lyrics with good Christian fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. The nail's spear shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. Or mild he lays his glory by, born so that men may no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them a second birth. Hark the herald, the angels sing, glory to the newborn king. From the moment that Jesus was born, as we just read from Matthew chapter 2, he was persecuted. The birth of Jesus, as we're recorded here in Matthew's gospel, is not sweet silent night. All was not calm. Ask Mary and Joseph how calm it was when the angel told them, they're after Jesus's head. You need to flee to Egypt now. Get up and go. Jesus was sent into the world to lay down his life, to die for sinners, to rescue us from bondage and brokenness. So it is that the Christmas season should not be missed. Let's not be a people that forget why Jesus was sent into the world, and let's not make our Christmas about a sweet, cuddly, eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. So if there's one short sentence that you should remember this season to hopefully not miss that, it's from John 20, 21. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Jesus said these words, as the Father sent me, I am I'm sending you. This short sentence, I believe, sums up the big idea of the passage I'm about to read. So if you would, let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 16, and then I'm going to read through verse 25. 16 is the smaller little number. 10 is the larger number, and this can be found on page 815 in the Black Bibles around you. Notice the way that as Jesus is sent into the world, persecuted, eventually dying, so Jesus is sending his disciples. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub. How much more will they malign those of his household? 
Hope you can see what I was referring to. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so you will see the way Jesus sends his disciples. We're here in the middle of a passage in Matthew chapter 10, which is a sermon on mission. Earlier in Matthew 5 through 7, many of you might be familiar with what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this is the Sermon on the Mission. And it's all about Jesus sending out this 12 disciples. If you look back up in verse 10, or verse 1 of chapter 10, and he called him 12 disciples and then gave them authority. And then it says in verse 5 that these 12 were then sent out and instructed them in certain specific instructions. As we talked about some last week, I believe that these instructions are particular to this time in history, and although that doesn't mean there's no applications for us, it means you should be very careful about some of the tensions that are held in this text and in this sermon that Jesus is giving about how he's calling these people and sending these people out compared to us here today. So that's an important observation, but let's first ask some simple questions of our text. Starting in verse 16, we're told that, behold, Jesus is sending these disciples out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In case you don't catch the drift or you're not familiar with agricultural animals, being a sheep in the midst of wolves is a bad scenario to be in. It's not like you've read too many movies or stories or heard about sheep fighting off themselves and being like, oh, the wolves came and then, you know, they took care of the wolves and beat them up and then went on their way. In this case, you have sheep in the midst of wolves and they're being sent to these wolves. Notice that it's Jesus that's sending these people to the wolves. This is not like, oh, everyone's going to have hard times in life. Jesus is sending hard times for his disciples. It begs the question, do you really want to follow Jesus? Do you really want to follow a Jesus that would send people into the midst of wolves? What what kind of Jesus is this? Well, we need to look at our text to figure out not only who Jesus is, but who these wolves are. So first, who are these wolves? Verse 17 makes it, I think, quite clear. Beware of men. Humans, people, that's who the wolves are. They will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. More specifically, he's referring to Jewish men and women. That's what we get the clue from, from the word synagogue. That is a Jewish house of worship. In the second temple period, which is the time between the Old and New Testament, there was a long period of no prophets, and they established, instead of worship only in the temple in Jerusalem, lots of little teaching places called synagogues. So when it says that you will be handed over to the courts and flogged in the synagogues, that's talking about Jewish places of worship. So these Jewish men, if you look back in verse 5, they, 12 that Jesus sent out, they were not to go amongst the non-Jewish or Gentile people. They're only, rather, verse 6, to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so Jesus says, now beware, for you might be delivered over by these wolves in the courts and flogged in the synagogues. If you're not familiar, that flogging means 39 lashes from a whip with bone and metal pieces or glass at the very end of this leather whip. They would do some on the front and some on the back, and you'd just be ripped raw from the end of it. 39 lashes. If any of you have seen the Mel Gibson film, Passion of the Christ, 
the moment before Jesus dies on the cross, there is a very vivid enactment, reenactment of 39 lashes. Paul the Apostle, later on in the New Testament, says he received that five times in his life, these floggings in synagogues. So Jesus' words came true. He said, beware of this, and sure enough, when we read the New Testament, that's exactly what happened. If you want to hold your finger there and follow along, I'm going to turn over to Acts chapter 5. I want to read you an example of how these came true. Jewish men came up to Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders rejected the message of Jesus, and they flogged these men. Starting in verse 17 of chapter 5, found on page 913. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. The apostles are the people that Jesus is talking about in our text, the disciples. And then he put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We have found the prison securely locked, but the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what, this could, what would come of this. And someone came to them and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And that's that phrase we saw, the Sanhedrin, um, the council of the synagogues, the high priests. And they questioned them. They said, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I love that phrase. I hope that Palatine is filled with the teaching of Jesus. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thetis rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men. About 400 joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed were dispersed and came to nothing. After him came the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and, I, and let them alone. For if the plan or the undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Yet you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching. The Christ is Jesus. Acts chapter 5 is an excellent story to illustrate Jesus' point. Jesus predicts 
I'm going to send you out into wolves. When I do so, you will be beat. You will be flogged by Jewish leaders. And so Acts 5 confirms Jesus is not just a prophet who says big claims and they don't come true. He is a prophet that when he says things, they do come true. So who are the wolves? Well, the first example in verse 17 is Jewish leaders. But verse 18 says in Matthew 10, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles, or the people of other nations. So the people that will persecute Christians are both Jewish people and non-Jewish people, kings and governors and Jewish Sanhedrin leaders. But it doesn't just stop there, in fact. You keep reading, you notice that Jesus says in verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his children. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my namesake. Who are the wolves? Friends, family members, Jewish people, non-Jewish people, brothers, sisters, parents. Jesus here is making clear that all men, now all men does not mean every single person is going to hate you and every single person is going to want to kill you if you're a follower of Jesus. It wasn't even true of these men. Some of them heard the message of Jesus and they repented. They turned from their sin and they put their trust in Jesus. So all men should probably be understood as all categories of men. As we've just surveyed, Jewish, non-Jewish, officials in government, non-officials in government, brothers, sisters, parents. I think that's what Jesus means. The wolves are all kinds of people. Global persecution of Christians in the modern era doesn't look much different, by the way. Statistically, each month, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. 214 church buildings and other properties are destroyed. 722 other forms of violence are committed against Christians. Beatings, abductions, arrests, forced marriages. The expectation is not that as Jesus continues to send us out, that it's going to end or get better. If anything, we have only seen as the gospel message moves out, these intensities get worse. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Do you want to be sent out in the same way that Jesus was sent into the world? Humbled, persecuted, from the moment of his birth to his eventual death. Who are the wolves? They could be the members of your family. They could be the members of your neighborhood or community. They could be anyone. You will be hated. That phrase is used in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four biographies of Jesus want to make sure that people who want to follow Jesus get the fine print. Jesus is not a salesman who doesn't tell you exactly the way it's going to be. Oh, did I forget to leave that point out? I mean, I told you about the forgiveness of sins, the joy of restored fellowship with God, and sold you a bill of goods without you realizing also, oh, by the way, the world's going to hate you. Now, Jesus is quite plain, isn't he? So let's ask another question. Why? Why will these disciples then and now suffer? And the text is quite clear. If you look, verse 18, it says, You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them 
Look at verse 22. And you will be hated by all again for my sake, my name's sake. Or as verse 24 and 25 make quite clear, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? It's really good news to hear Jesus say that you could be a member of his household. It's what we celebrated earlier when we did the baby dedication, is it not? That although through birth we want to celebrate new life that's being given to the children around us, there is a teaching in the Christian church that's different from many other religions. We did not say, because you're born in a Christian family, therefore you are a Christian. We said the exact opposite at the baby dedication. We said that to be a member of God's household, like Jesus is talking about here, you need to be born again. You need to have a second birth, as Jesus teaches very clearly in John chapter 3. Born again spiritually, born again from the inside out, from a change of heart. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you think that you're a Christian because your mom and dad are a Christian, maybe there's a lot of young people, you didn't have class today, it's a good time for you to listen up for a second. Do you think you're a Christian today? Because your mom and dad is a Christian. The Bible is very clear. Christians are only people who are born again by repenting of their sin, turning from their former ways, and embracing the ways of Jesus, even when those ways include being hated by all kinds of people. We're going to explain in just a moment why it's worth doing that, especially for any of you young kids that might think, I don't know if I want to do that. But there's several adults around you, and even your parents, that say this is not only a good way, it is the way. It is the only way. And that is, in fact, part of why people hate Jesus. It's not very tolerant. It's not a fun message to go around and tell people this is the way of salvation. It's quite clear in our text that verse 22 says, but the ones who endure to the end, they will be saved. That's the word salvation, to be rescued, to be delivered. Rescued and delivered from what? Well, ultimately, the Bible teaches that we need to be delivered from the punishment of God that we deserve as sinners. And so in order to be saved from that, we need to endure to the end by having faith and trust in God. So, friends, if you're here today and you trust in Jesus, don't assume that because you believed earlier in your life or you made a profession of faith or you prayed a prayer when you were a young kid or you got baptized at one point that you're now right with God. You must endure to the end. Continue believing a message that's not popular with the rest of the world. Be willing to face persecution. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know what it means to be one, to be a follower of Jesus. You will not be saved unless you have faith in Christ, and you will not be a part of his household unless you put your trust in him. And so we need to realize that it is important for us to look at our lives, examine them, and see, do I know Jesus? And better yet, does he know me as one of his family members? And so the point of this question, why will these people suffer? Because they've trusted in Jesus, because they become a part of the family. If that's how they treat the head of the family, well, that's how they're going to treat the children. It doesn't mean that in this text, nobody can become better than their teacher. 
I mean, certainly somebody might teach better or more eloquently than a master or a teacher. The point is, is that in the same way that they treated the teacher, the respect and dignity that he got, no matter how good or bad of the teacher he was, the students will have the same respect or dignity, which is none at all. And so they will suffer because they are connected with and identified with Jesus. That is both a wonderful, joyful, good news to declare and a sobering reminder of what comes with identifying yourself with Jesus. By embracing this persecution, as followers of Jesus, we will have opportunities to witness for Jesus in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise, both in the power of our witness and in the opportunities that are presented. Notice here in this text, it says that you will be flogged, you'll be dragged, and then you will bear witness. It's as if he's trying to make it clear that this is not happening on accident. I sent you into the midst of wolves so that you can bear witness. It's purposeful. There is no suffering that you will go through that's going to be wasted, followers of Jesus. So you can take heart to know that Jesus has, in fact, a plan. And some of those plans, by the way, are hard. I think sometimes in American Christian circles, we always talk, well, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I believe that's true, but for some people, that wonderful plan is death. That wonderful plan is persecution, intensely. Sink that in for a moment. That wonderful plan is not that everything's going to go well and right and prosperous in your life. Sometimes it gets worse. Following Jesus doesn't automatically make all of your financial banking accounts better. Or you get that new job. It's not like a a trade, hey, I'll follow Jesus if you give me this. It's I'll follow Jesus because I get Jesus. That's the very point. What he says is, don't worry about what you're going to say because I'll be with you and the Spirit of the Father will work through you. His presence will go with you. So the reason the suffering happens is because of the identification and the witnessing of Jesus. I want to illustrate this with a story I recently told our children when we were trying to understand this idea of suffering. So just recently we had a little family worship time at the dinner table. I did not pray the Lord baby Jesus like I illustrated earlier. Uh, Just Father in heaven. But I told them this story and I think it was fresh in my mind and I think it fits well. It's a story about a man named Joseph and he is a tribal warrior in an African tribe. And I think this comes from a musician who I first heard it, uh, Michael Card. Anyway, here's how it goes. One day, Joseph was walking along a hot, dirty African road, and he met somebody who shared the gospel of Jesus with him. Then and there, he heard the good news of Jesus, accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. Right then and there, the power of the Spirit began transforming his life, and he was filled with excitement and joy The very first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share this good news with all the members of his family and the rest of his tribe. So Joseph began going door to door, telling everybody about the cross of Christ, about Jesus' suffering, and about the salvation that it offers. He expected to see their faces light up the same way his did when he heard this news. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they quickly became violent. The men of the village seized him, held him to the ground, and the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was then dragged from the village and left to die alone in some bushes. Somehow, Joseph managed to crawl to a waterhole, and there 
After days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered, why did he receive such a hostile reception from all these people? He'd known them all of his life. He was giving them good news. He decided he must have said something wrong. Maybe he left some part of the story out. So he rehearsed the message of Jesus again. He decided, I need to make sure they get it. And he went back to his tribe. Joseph went limping into the circle of huts and began proclaiming yet again the truth of Jesus. He said, he died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. He would plead with them to trust in Christ. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him again, reopening the wounds that had just started to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die in the bushes. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through this second beating was a miracle. Days later, after Joseph woke up in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to his small village, and this time, they started attacking before he could even open his mouth. They flogged him for what would seem to be the third and probably last time. And as they were doing such, he spoke these words, Jesus Christ, he's the Lord. Before passing out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he woke up in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village came to faith in Jesus that day. This story more than almost any other story, I think communicates the need for persevering to the end, for continuing to preach Christ, for being a sheep in the midst of wolves, and seeing how God will use that as a powerful testimony and probably the only way that village would have come to faith. Why did they suffer? Because of Jesus, because of the identity of Jesus that they were attached with him, because they chose to go. I think it's really important at this point also to make clear that the Christian faith is not a forced religion on children or anybody. Notice the way in verse 23 it says that when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Earlier in the passage in chapter 10, It says that in verse 12, as you enter a house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. When you leave the house or town, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable for the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Both of those instances show that when Jesus is talking about sharing his message with his first disciples, he does not tell them, go to a town or go to a house, and if they reject you, put a gun to their head. Force them to convert, and if they don't, shoot them. You'll never hear that in Christianity. You will never hear forced conversions or manipulation That is not the message of Jesus. It is to be shared and declared and oftentimes at the expense of people's lives, their families, their livelihoods, 
their finances. Christianity is not like so many other faiths that require or demand that you do this or else. It is your choice. So as you sit here today, for those of you who are here, you need to know that these disciples that went out, they signed up for this. Which reminds me of a man named Richard Wormbrandt. Some of you who are Christians and around Christianity for a while, you may have heard of the ministry called Voice of the Martyrs. Richard Wormbrandt started that ministry, and the whole ministry is to help teach Christians about the people who are suffering for their faith. Before Richard Wormbrandt suffered his own sufferings as a Christian and a missionary, he said, the time of preparation for suffering starts now. It is too difficult to prepare yourself when the suffering comes and they've already put you in prison. He recounts a story that he remembers on his last day of confirmation class in a church before he left for Romania. He took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to a church, but to the zoo. How about that for confirmation class? He had them stand before a cage of lions and told them, your forefathers in the faith were thrown before such wild beasts for trusting in Jesus. Know full well that you too may suffer. You may not be thrown before lions, but you will have to deal with men who would much be much worse than lions. So decide here and now, do you wish to pledge your allegiance to Christ? Wormbrandt said, that with tears in their eyes, one by one, each of them said, yes. So he concludes, brothers and sisters, the time to prepare for this kind of suffering is now, before you become imprisoned. In prison, you lose everything. You're undressed and given a prisoner's suit. No more nice furniture. No more nice carpet or curtains. You do not have a wife anymore. You don't have your children next to you. You do not have a library. You will never see a flower. Nothing of what makes life present remains. Nobody resists who has not already now resists the pleasures of life beforehand. So are you willing to follow Jesus? To do so is to die now. Not then when that moment happens, but now. Start preparing now for following Jesus in whatever he might bring for you. Sometimes when you read stories like this or talk about this topic, I've heard people say, we should want persecution. We should even pray for it because we see how powerful it is. Friends, that is silly. That's almost psychotic or demonic. Like, no, who wants to suffer this way? Like, asks for it. Please, sign me up. I want to suffer. That's not what I'm trying to say in this message, nor do I think Jesus is saying. Be willing to. Realize that when everything is taken from you, then you know that you have already that you needed. Because so often in life, you know that Jesus is all you need when he's all that you have. And so that's the posture we want to find ourselves in. Jesus is all that I really need. So that when he does ask, that's all you're going to have. You've already made that decision every single day. We're going to look at this text in a few weeks, but Jesus doesn't say take up your cross just once. Take up your cross daily, dying to ourselves. We need to be ready to die. 
And that doesn't mean we want to die. We want to live long lives with our friends and family at Christmas time. But the cross of Christ and the mission and message of Jesus is more precious than any family member, any friendship, any comfort in this life. And so we need to conclude by saying, why? Not why did they suffer, why? Why is that so much better? Why would any of you come back next week and say, if that's what Christianity is, okay, sign me up, I'm willing. Why would these men choose to follow Jesus? A few answers. One, he will always be with them. We mentioned this earlier in the text when it says, don't be afraid about what you're going to say. Don't get anxious or worried about it. The Spirit of the Father will be in you. My presence will go with you wherever you go. So there's one sense to which Jesus will never leave you, even when everyone else does. Second reason, Jesus never calls any of his people to do something that he wouldn't do first himself. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I was in basketball, our coach would tell us to do these very intense, hard workouts, training for the season. And so he would sit there and look down at us and say, more push-ups, more sprints. We're like, how about you do them, you know? Like, this is hard. If you've ever experienced that, where somebody's telling you to do something, and you're like, okay, but do it with me, or you do it first and show me how it's done. Sometimes our hearts can get hard in those settings toward the people who are demanding more and more of us. Your hearts will never get hard if you look at Jesus the way he should be seen. He is a master who does not look down at his servants. Doulos is the word, the slaves. You should remove all of imagery you have of modern slavery. This is just the concept of having a good master and a good worker, if you want to think about it that way. If Jesus is your master, you can know everything he asks you to do, he's going to do himself. So when you look at our text, verse 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus is called the ultimate sheep who was slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. He was innocent as doves. Verse 17 says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Before Jesus died, as I mentioned in that movie, The Passion of the Christ, or as you read in the Gospels, all the Gospels explain quite clearly that Jesus was grabbed out and put into courts, and he was flogged before Jewish leaders, before Gentile kings and governors. Verse 19, when you do, are delivered, don't be anxious about what you're going to say. When you read the gospel story, do you see Jesus seeming frantic, worried, anxious in those ways? Or like a serpent, wise and cunning, confronting the leaders of the day right to their face and saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Brothers will deliver brothers over to death. The word deliver there is the same word used earlier in the text. Look in chapter 10, verse 4. And Judas 
Iscariot, who betrayed him. Brothers will betray brothers. Jesus' closest disciples, the twelve, included a man who would be his brother and betray him, hand him over. You'll be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You can't read anything in this text that Jesus himself does not first do, and then you be asked, so I need to do that? Yeah, because that's exactly what Jesus did. He'll never leave you, but he'll also never give you more than what he gave himself. None of us will match the suffering that Jesus experienced. And so we should see in this text a foreshadowing not just of the apostles, but of Christ and his own cross. Third reason, you should follow Jesus because he's going to be with you. You should follow him because he's not going to ask you to do more than what he would do himself. That should melt the heart, not harden it. And lastly, because you will be vindicated just like Jesus was. You'll be raised, even if the very worst thing happens to you, namely death. That won't be the end of the story. And in fact, I believe Jesus is referencing that right here in Matthew 10. In what Don Carson, a very well-known Bible teacher here in the Chicago area and all around the world, expert Bible scholar, okay, he says, Matthew 10, 23 is the hardest Bible verse in the entire New Testament to understand. Well, here we go. Let's dive in. Look at verse 23 again. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. This isn't the hard part. It's the next statement. For truly, I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. I will bore you with all the options and tell you what the right one is. What does the phrase, before the Son of Man comes? And it wasn't a coincidence that I asked Sergi earlier in the service to have us read Daniel chapter 6. Hopefully many of you have heard that story before, but if not, just to recap, Daniel was the second-hand man to the king of Persia. For faithfully praying to his God, he ended up violating a command that was given that nobody should pray to any other God except the king of Persia. Daniel kept praying three times a day. For doing so, he was caught and thrown into the lion's den, and the king was distraught because he loved Daniel. He just got caught in a trap by some men that were very jealous of Daniel's position of authority. So in the lion's den, as the king waited all night, he couldn't sleep, it says in the text, sleep left him. Daniel stayed alive. God protected and preserved. He was with him. It said angels came down and shut the mouths of the lions, and the king comes and opens the tomb, the, the rock that was rolled away, and says, Daniel, are you in there? Did, did your God save you? And Daniel says, yes. And he came out and he rose out of the tomb, victorious over his betrayers that tried to trap him. He then was given the place at the right hand of the throne that he had before. Do you all not see some parallels if you know the story of Jesus? He was the second-hand man to the man on the throne, was sent down into the depths of the pit amongst wolves, not only just wolves, but lions. But he was faithful. 
However, in this story, Jesus, he actually did die. But God raised him again from the dead three days later, and then he ascended him into the heavens and made him at the right hand of the Father. And I believe that this phrase, when the Son of Man comes, is the reference of Daniel chapter 7, which parallels Daniel 6. That there will be a day when the Son of Man comes, not to heaven, not to earth, but to heaven. The coming of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 is a reference to the exaltation or the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. It makes the most sense to read it in the Daniel 7 way, and so that's the way I'd encourage you to. So what's the point? In the same way that Daniel was vindicated for being faithful, in the same way that Jesus was vindicated for being faithful and then raised up, so you too, no matter what happens, God will preserve you. He will be with you. He will be your model and example, and he will raise you up again, seated with him in the heavenlies. Your identification with Jesus being, if you're the master and servant relationship, if he's the master of the house and we're a part of his household, that means we get all the blessings that are in Jesus, which are at the right hand of the Father now. Meaning nobody can really touch you. If you come back in the next couple weeks, you'll see that's why he says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Why'd you be afraid of that? So they kill you. You'll be raised. Resurrection truth. Ascension power is what we're preaching today. And this, my friends, is why Jesus had to come as a man in the first place. Not just so he could descend as a little baby, so he could ascend into the heavens as our representative. And if you're united with Jesus, then there's nothing that any persecution could ever do to take away your future, your inheritance. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending Jesus into the world. And we want to thank you for sending us into the world as representatives and as witnesses, literally as martyrs to the nations. We want to pray now for everyone here that we would receive the message of Jesus. Even if we've received it in the past, help us to persevere today and receive it again afresh. That even though the cost is great, the reward is greater. Even though it is going to be difficult, it is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed when you return fully and finally and make all things new. Help us to find encouragement in the story of Jesus, the story of Daniel, the story of those apostles who rejoice for being counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. May that be true of us. Would you send us out to the nations, to hard places, and not think that because things get difficult, oh, that must not be God's will. Oh, God, teach us a different way to think as followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.